Affect Perspectives, a new podcast from Affect Autism. ICDL has a number of courses and services coming up that might interest you. You can find out more information about all of these courses and ICDL's DIR Floor Time Certificate courses at icdl.com courses. Also, check out the upcoming afternoon and evening dates for parent support meetings that I facilitate at the events tab at affectautism.com, including the first week of the month where we have an expert guest to answer parent questions. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. I'm Daria Brown. And on this week's podcast, I am super excited to have our first parent panel with two parents. Melinda is a seasoned pediatric occupational therapist who has worked with special needs students in a variety of settings, including schools, outpatient clinics, early intervention settings, and hospitals. She is also the mother of an 11-year-old autistic boy with complex challenges. She's here to discuss the balance of being a therapist and mother and what it's like experiencing being on the other side of the IEP table. And also, she wants to discuss the challenges of navigating the complex healthcare system. Leslie has a PhD in behavioral neuroscience psychology, whose doctoral research was based on polyvagal theory, with a focus on how internal regulation relates to higher cognitive skills. She's an associate professor of psychology who teaches developmental psychology, psychology of trauma, and cognitive psychology, and is also the parent of a six-year-old autistic girl. She is here to discuss the challenges of navigating the education system for her neurodivergent child. The two of these lovely parents met at a live offering of DIR 101 offered by the International Council on Development and Learning, an introduction to DIR and DIR floor time, and they connected over their similar experiences. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. you. So uh, I guess I would love to start by having you each tell us about your experience becoming a mother given this professional experience that you both had in your careers prior to becoming a parent. Um, would you like to start, Melinda? Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Daria. Um, yeah, prior to becoming a parent, as you mentioned, I was an occupational therapist. It was very rewarding to work with a lot of special needs students and children who had a, so many diverse challenges and diverse um, ways of learning. And I, it's, it's always been something I love. I love being with kids. I love working with kids. I love seeing how they respond to various um, activities and things that I work with them on. And, and really, as any teacher, I think would probably say, although I'm a therapist, but the, the children do teach you as well <laughs> when you're, when you're working with them. So um that being said, I, I thought I knew, and I, I do know <laughs> about you know child development. However, when I became a mom, um, I, I as any other therapist could probably relate, and, and or mom, I was looking for those developmental milestones. I was looking to see, hey, uh, specifically as an OT, how are their fine motor skills? Hey, are they holding this the right way? Hey, are they holding their head up? Hey, are they sitting up at the right time? Are they walking? all those kind of things that, that a mom, a new mom is really excited, especially if 
a first time mom because I'm a kind of one and done mom. So, so that was, it was a first and last for me all the time. So um, my child's development um, was progressing pretty well. Um, and then probably around the time when he was about seven, um, more challenges started to emerge. And of course that makes sense because then we're entering school, we're entering more um, independent uh, learning and independent socialization. So as that happened, his challenges became apparent. Um, he, he actually was recently diagnosed um, with autism when he was 10. So the other challenges he has, he was diagnosed with were um, ADHD and anxiety um, disorder. Um, he also has sensory issues, <laughs> which as an OT, I am well aware of that. Um, but he's an amazing child. He's an amazing boy. And I, I'm just saying those things to kind of give you a picture of the challenges that he's dealing with. I'm not going to really go into much detail about all of his challenges because I really want to respect his right to share his story with people um, in his own way and in his own time. Um, so when I became, like I said, when I became a mom, I thought I knew, I thought I knew, <laughs> I think like many people think, right? And then it was kind of like I was thrown with a curveball because I was like, uh-oh, we have some issues here. So I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm a therapist. I know what to do. I can handle this. And so um, like most therapists or even moms, I'll just say moms, moms are can-do people. And, you know, okay, just tell me what to do. I'm going to do it and I'll make it better and I'll make it right or I'll, I'll fix it. And so that's what I thought I was doing. I, I really made a you know, a judgment that might've been a little bit faulty and thinking that I could be my child's therapist, right? <laughs> and so I thought, hmm, let me, you know, do some activities and, and in fun ways. I mean, it wasn't, you know, a formal thing. It was a mother-child interaction and bonding. However, as he got older um, and, and I was, you know, trying to elicit certain responses and trying to work with him, he, I found that he was rejecting me specifically um, being in that role with him. And, you know, OTs know a lot about roles, right? And, and that's part of our job is to work with people in their roles as mom, as, you know, child, as student, as learner, whatever. And it took me a while to realize that, hey, Melinda, you're not in the role of therapist here with your child, you're in the role of mom. And that's how he's going to relate to you. He is not going to accept you as his therapist. So that was like a light bulb moment for me, but also like a, why didn't I realize that earlier moment as well? So when I realized that, that's when I did pursue getting him more um, help um, in the form of OT services that were not provided by me and um, other uh, services that in the healthcare system. And so that's kind of, and then of course our story went on, but that's, kind of the before and after of, of how I became a mom. Thank you so much. Leslie? Uh, thank you, Daria. Thank you for having me. Um, there's so many things with Melinda's story that I connect with. Um, so yes, I have a background. I've always been interested in psychology and during college, um, I just started getting interested in brain function and 
um, ended up pursuing my master's and PhD in um, psychology um, focused in the behavioral neuroscience stream. And um, my dissertation work, um, I got interested in sort of the brain-body connection. And at the time, there Porges's polyvagal theory was sort of becoming quite popular. And a lot of people were looking at it with respect to emotions and affect. But um, in the laboratory where I worked, we were interested in the role in cognition. And so we looked at measures of regulation using an, a measure of heart rate variability. And we looked at whether baseline heart rate variability um, or baseline, um, an indicator of regulation related to how people did on cognitive tasks that involved memory and attention. And I was looking, I was really interested in how this works in older adults because we know that there are changes in the autonomic nervous system with age. Um, so <laughs> I finished my degree and I, um, I found a love of teaching, and so I was very fortunate to find a position um, at a local college and started teaching a variety of courses, um, and I really loved it. And I got married, and we decided, you know, we it's time to have a baby, and um, we had our wonderful daughter. And um, it was um, a challenge from the beginning. There were... Um, the first word actually that was used to describe her <laughs> by a doctor was, well, she is vigorous. I always, I just remember <laughs> that word. Um, we had a, a tough beginning, which about six months in, when we were finally uh, got a diagnosis of reflux and food allergies, we sort of um, chalked it up to that. But some challenges remained. And I, I, I think one story in particular demonstrates demonstrates that while um, we, I was driving in the car, my husband, uh, I, for some reason I was sitting in the back with my daughter and we'd had a nice visit somewhere. And I went to put my hand on her gently and she took my hand and pushed it away. Um, she was a little over one, I think. And I remember that was, it just was one of these things that was just a moment where I just felt what is wrong with me and why, and I was fortunate enough to um, know um, someone at the time um, who was a speech language therapist. And I just sort of mentioned it in passing. And, and she said, you know, you might want to try to, that sort of touch might be uncomfortable to her. You might want to try to touch her with motion or pressure. And I went home and I tried it right away. It was like a, a huge difference. And it was like the first moment of, realizing there's something different here and it helped me reframe it and it helped me realize okay just because I can't connect with her in this way that I think we're supposed to connect doesn't mean I can't connect it means I have to find what's comfortable for her um, in terms of connecting with me um, we received the diagnosis um, around the age of four for me I I it was a a wonderful thing because it it explained so much it it allowed me to reframe so many things that i struggle with on a daily basis um and it allows me to look at you know what we often say is you know just the behavior um and to step back and say okay well what what's this behavior telling me what's going on and um my daughter is has taught me more about regulation <laughs> than 
than any <laughs> research paper I've ever read. Um, and she has taught me the importance of co-regulation um, and the challenges of co-regulating. And um, I have been where Melinda is. I have, I'm still learning. I am not, I'm not her specialist. I am not her therapist, nor can I be. I'm her mom. And um, that co-regulation piece, it's so powerful, but I understand that as a parent living it, day in and day out, it's a tall order because there's times when I'm not regulated. So yes, there are challenges and um, every day uh, I get up and I try again. Thank you both so much. Um, I'm very keen to learn what brought you to floor time and to take that DIR 101 course. I can tell from you know, just some of the words you just said, Leslie, like um, helping you reframe, learning how to connect with your child as opposed to expecting them to connect a certain way. Uh, these are all floor time principles um, and the whole regulation, co-regulation piece. So um, Melinda, what, where did you hear about floor time and what made you decide to take the intro course? Well, I was aware of floor time prior to taking the course. Um, I had actually had an experience in a school that I worked in um, with a floor time practitioner um, and I had observed them doing floor time with um, a student in the school and it was interesting how she was she was working with an autistic student and she was down on the floor literally and almost like her cheek was like laying down on the floor and looking at him like they were both like lying sideways to each other and I was like that's interesting and I asked her a little bit about what she was doing and she explained to me and I I put that like kind of in my head about okay check mark let's make a note to learn a little more about that um but I'm for but then like as anything time goes by and you say okay I'll learn about that and and I'll you know take some more continuing ed courses as well as we have to do as professionals but um the really interesting thing is in taking this course is I hadn't really realized the, the importance uh, of the R part. For me, the R is, it's all about the R, which is relationship. And I currently do and have throughout my career worked with autistic students who are in self-contained classrooms and who aren't in self-contained classrooms. And what I find, have found in my experience as well as in my own practice, but also in observing those environments on a regular basis is that it's very challenging to have that R piece and to work on that relationship piece um, because the focus tends to be on the academic issues. And I'm not saying that that's a problem because that's what school is traditionally for is is um, academic issues. But what I found interesting was um, when I was working with some of these students, even some of the people who are the behaviorists that work with them were like, oh, you need to pair with him. You need to pair. And I'm like, hmm, you mean have a relationship with him? Is that what you mean? You know. And so I think, you know, when I hear Leslie speaking about self-regulation, I am, Leslie and I, I feel like, you know, we're just we connect so so well on these issues because OTs are all about self-regulation, sensory processing, 
bottom-up approaches rather than top-down approaches. And so I feel, yeah, I feel a, a yeah, a com camaraderie <laughs> with everybody who, who um, espouses this approach, right? And when I went to the course, I was like, this is bottom-up. This is, you know, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's starting at the bottom. It's not starting at the top. It's not expecting, you know, the students or the person or the child, like like you had said, Dari, to to that expecting them to change for me. I'm the one who has to change for them. And then maybe we're going to be able to meet somewhere in the middle and work on things that we both can find rewarding and and engaging and important. So that's, that's, I know it's a long explanation, but that's really what I took out of this course that I did take. I'm so glad I did. And fingers crossed, I hope to take the certificate courses for uh, the full DIR program. I took a lot of courses in sensory integration. I understand that. But for me, it's interesting how the sensory piece can fit into the DIR and how those can work together in tandem and really um, when the the combination of those things can work to make a really successful and just, I guess I'm trying to think of the word I want to use, but a, an, a, an amazing tool and and way of way of relating to people who have neurodiverse brains. So you know why did I take the DIR course when I did? Um, well. It was offered by um, the New Jersey Occupational Therapy Association. And in looking more at it um, and the details of the course, it was, I thought to myself, I have learned about this in the past. I had seen it in implementation in the schools and it's about time I learned more about it in detail. So I knew really what was going on and really what was what was happening with these interactions and these techniques. So it was a combination of interest with the convenience that the association, you know, had it in your email inbox or whatever. And you're like, it's time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And how about you, Leslie? Well, so going back to um, that story I told about when I, you know, touched my daughter and, and that person, the, the speech language therapist, um, Shortly after that, I sort of asked her, you know, could you come over and, and she came and um, I, I'm going to be very upfront here that um, before I had a child, and as someone who has studied psychology, um, I look back and I was very much a, um, a behaviorist. Um, and I assumed that that's what, <laughs> that's just how I had been taught about learning. That's, that's what psychology 101 textbooks focus on or <laughs> behaviorism. Um, and I still remember the first time that um, this um, person came to my house and we were talking. And I remember my daughter was playing in the cabinet with some Tupperware and, and um, this person, you know, said they loved that she was just, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I gave her access to the cabinet. And we were chit-chatting about parenting. And I said, you know, I want to ask you something. I'm just doing a little bit of reading. And so if the child is like behaving in an undesirable way, I shouldn't, or they're, you know, upset and throwing things, I shouldn't ignore them. Right. And I look back now 
And having said that, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, the where I have, and I remember she was so gentle in her response to me because I, I say it to her now. I'm like, I can't believe I said that. I, every time I see her, I'm like, I still can't believe I said that to you. And she said, well, you know, think about it. If you came home from work and you had a bad day and you were really, you know, frustrated or, you know, and you were whatever, you know, clearly visibly frustrated and your husband just ignored you, what would that do? And I was like, oh, it would infuriate me. It would make it worse. And um, so I will say the rest of that visit, she really introduced me to um, DIR floor time and using affect and meeting do the weight observe join. Um, my daughter was fascinated with mirrors. Everything was done in the mirror. She'd go up to the mirror with everything um, and look at it. And I never thought to join her in doing that. I never thought to, it was just, okay, she's in the mirror. She's happy. I never thought to use that as an opportunity to connect with her. And it became one of the best ways that I, I was able to, to engage with her emotionally. <laughs> she was, it was like, oh, you're here too. And it was, um, it was wonderful. And so um, we also along the way met um, a wonderful um, developmental psychologist who um, has done a, a bit of started with a bit of theraplay um, and some parent coaching, but over time has moved really to DIR um, in terms of her approach. And it's just all I can describe is when I started using affect, when I started waiting, observing, and joining with my daughter, I I just can't describe it, but it was just within a couple months, I would say, I just saw a different child. I, I, it was like we unlocked this excited person who all of a sudden really wanted to be with us. I, I just, the, as I tell people, I'm like, the proof is in the pudding. I can't describe it. There's just, it's, there's something there. And so I have just learned again so much. I just find my daughter to be the most fascinating person I've ever met. And um, the opportunity came to take it. It was just the right time. Um, I had always wanted to do it. One other time something came up, I couldn't. And um, I, I also, I guess I wanted to go in and really understand um, uh, the developmental capacities because at times I I struggle at this point in her development to connect with her sometimes because I am neurodivergent myself. And sometimes I can be very literal and very structured about things. And that can be challenging for my daughter at this point. And in terms of what are we going to do together right now? And in terms of me trying to understand how to engage with her, it's different now. It's not as sort of simple as engaging in the mirror. And so I, I just felt based on where we were in our relationship, I, I wanted to understand more about DIR and um, because I, I want to continue to find joy in my relationship with her. Um, and I know that it's, 
it is up to me as the parent to do that. It is a very tall order, but it's the most important thing. And I, I guess I've just seen at times when we we figure out what it is, what do we need to do, how we're not regulated, what's going on. And when you you figure out and you can unlock that, it's just, you can't describe it. It's just, it's just wonderful. <laughs> I hear so many parents say that, and, you know, the experience of so many parents that their child doesn't want to be with them or likes being alone better. And we know that that's not true. Um, we just haven't, they just haven't figured out how to connect with us or, or vice versa. And then when you suddenly do, like you said, take those extra steps to make that effort to connect, all of a sudden you see, oh, here's the child has wanted to connect with me all the time. I just wasn't making it um, mm -hmm. possible for them to do it. It's so yeah, interesting. Sometimes we don't know. It's the stress around the house. It's it's times the parent coaching has been so important because there have been times where we, the whole household, things, the stress is high. And our, our my daughter's psychologist, you know, has repeatedly reminded us, look at what's going on right now in your lives, not just with our daughter in our lives. And the stress is high right now. When the stress is high, reduce the demands, focus on your relationship, focus. And I need to hear that sometimes that reminder, because I, I get, God, it's just, and I get the comparison with where other children are and the worry, the fear takes over, but if she, she's not doing this and she's, she's supposed to be here. And, and I think one of the most important things I heard at that training that just, I wrote it down. So it's there and it reminds me is that that first capacity, right? The, the regulation that is a um, it's a, it's a fluid capacity. What a child is capable of today maybe different than what that child's capable of tomorrow in terms of regulation, because maybe they didn't sleep well, they're getting sick, there's a stressor. And that has been monumental in terms of helping me shift my perspective on understanding my daughter. And at times pulling back from just viewing it behaviorally and, and the fear of like, this can't happen and I have to stop this and realizing something's going on, something, I have to pull back. I've got to, I've got to calm things down. And, and it's then that I can connect and it's then where things even out, but it's, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's hard. You get, we get off track sometimes. And, and so that's why I said every day, you know, I sort of wake up and I, I try again and I'm very fortunate. I have a support, very supportive husband and very supportive family um, and friends. It, it's, it is the reason that we are where we are. Um, and I know other people don't have that. And I, um, I, I don't know what you do because I, I do think it takes a village, uh, especially. Well, that segues nicely into what uh, we're going to discuss next, which is the challenges that come up. So I'm going to go to Melinda. And the challenge for me initially, when I was thinking about talking about the healthcare system was <clears throat> just at even knowing who to call, how to get a referral, how long you're going to have to wait, um, filling out all the paperwork. It's, it's like 
applying for a home mortgage if you own a home like or or you know if you've ever adopted a child applying for an adopt to adopt a child you know it's it's a huge process just the paperwork alone and then <clears throat> when you get the paperwork done and you file it and you you know you can contact what who you think is the right person <clears throat> you know then then they're like oh well we have about a 10 month wait or we might have a year wait because well, and in my case, unfortunately, my son was diagnosed like in 2020 around COVID. <clears throat> so I was like, oh, yeah, we have a year wait. And and after COVID, unfortunately, as we know, you know, things are still backed up for, for health care. Um, and then also the issue of finding out, oh, your insurance doesn't cover that. But and so it's like either out of pocket or nothing. But the out of pocket expense is way too expensive and you just can't afford it. I mean, this was the ironic part. I was like, I'm an OT and I can't afford me. You know, I was like, I was like what's wrong with this picture? You know? And so, I mean, that's just, that that's what struck me as, you know, ironically funny, right? That, you know, a lot of professionals, my, myself included, will say, oh, you, you need to get OT or PT or this person or that person or a neuro neurologist or a psychiatrist. It was really hard finding a child psychiatrist. So like just dealing with that was so challenging. I thought to myself, wait a minute, I know how to navigate this system. I've worked in hospitals. I know the questions to ask and all that stuff. And I thought, my gosh, what if I was a parent who didn't know any of this? Where would I start? I, I'd probably... And I know a lot of parents who have, and me, actually, I could probably include me. Like, sometimes I probably get overwhelmed and say, oh, you know what? I'm just going to do this later. And then later comes and things aren't getting better. In fact, things are getting worse for your child or worse for you or your family. And then, you know, before you know it, two months, three months, six months go by. And you're like, oh, my gosh, the mountain's higher. And now I have to climb even further up it to get help for my child or my family. And so that's kind of why I wanted to talk about the healthcare system. And so like, that's the, the, the compassion and, and for myself and other parents that I have is like, wow, you know, if you're, you're dealing with all the stuff that your child's dealing with, you're trying to help them. And then you're navigating this system and you're kind of not being regulated while you're navigating this system. Right. I mean, it's just, it just keeps going on. And you can only have so much money and so much help, which is why, as Leslie said, it takes a village. It takes, I think, parents helping parents out, professionals helping parents out, and also trainings. We want, If we want to get back to the training of DIR, trainings, like Leslie said, if you can train the parents, then they can help their child, not as their therapist, not as, you know, a professional, but as, as Leslie, you know, is, herself has experienced once you learn how to to um, do the work and relate in a different way and meet that child where they're at, then then maybe you can, it can be a little bit easier until you can figure out all the other things you need to do for them and get all the appointments set up. It's a, a step in the in the towards a solution is what I see it as. And and it's not the only solution and it's not the only thing your child may ever need, but it's it's a crucial part of the solution, because when you get down to it, I, I think about the work of um, people like Ross Green. Um, and he says, you know, kids do well if they can. 
if they can. And I think he shouldn't just say kids, people do well if they can. Because <laughs> there's times, as Leslie has said before, where, you know, I'm, I'm having a great day and today's pretty good. I think today's pretty good. I'm regulating pretty well right now, but I might get off this podcast and then something happens and I am fully dysregulated. And then I've got to, I've got to pull myself and have the capacity to pull myself back and say, okay, Melinda, breathe, use your strategies, take a minute. And we're expecting these young children to be <laughs> able to have that capacity of breathe, use my strategies, take a minute. That's not, that's not realistic, you know? And, and that's where, again, I'm going back to the parent training. It, that's where it's crucial because children don't have that capacity. They're not able to have that capacity. So their parents have to have that capacity for them and they have to, they have to help them develop it. But just like anything else, we have to, you know, walk before we run. We have to, you know, sit before we can, you know, stand those kind of things, just like those developmental milestones, we have to start at the bottom of the pyramid with these relationships. And, and, it, you know, as, as moms, and, you know, some people are very perfectionistic. I'm, I used to be one of those people. <laughs> I found that my perfectionism, like kind of had to go out the window when I had all these special needs to take care of. Right. <laughs> and, and so like, you know, oh my gosh, look what he did. It, he, the the whole his whole room's super messy or my kitchen's like a mess but you know what I'm down on the floor with him because he's having a hard time and I'm going to forget about all this kitchen mess and I'm going to be with him in this moment and say okay you're safe mommy loves you we're going to get through this together you know and those are the moments when you're sitting on your kitchen floor and you're looking around like oh my gosh this mess this house and the, whatever else is happening, you got to say, okay, mindfulness moment. I've just got to be here with my child. And we both have to regulate and get back to the place where we can say, okay, now what's next? So I connect so much with what Melinda just shared. Um, and it's beautiful leaving the dishes and just getting down and connecting with your child. And that's really hard on some days. Um, but when you can do it, it's, you know, that it's the most important thing you're doing. I think though, the challenge is when you're in a school setting, I think about the, the, the body battery. And I think, you know, um, the podcast that you, that you had on compliance and regulation and, you know, your job as a parent is send that kid with as full of a battery as possible. Right. And I, we really try to do that. But when, She's in a school setting where the classrooms are full and they're noisy and she's experiencing challenges and she's just one of, you know, over 20 kids. That is her cup's going to fill a lot faster. It's difficult because you are you can't do much in that setting. You, you, you have that IEP and, and you can put things in, but, um, you know, I, I think that again, the, the expectations, the demands, um, are just not in line with where children are developmentally at times. And we're asking the impossible of them too. And, um, it's very challenging because then your child is coming home and you're back at capacity one and it's, 
it's really hard to, what do you do? And you go through kindergarten, you go through first and maybe even second grade. And then what happens? Third grade. And third grade is where the rubber meets the road because then the expectations ramp up academically um, and also like regulatory wise, like you have to be more independent. You have to, you know, do independent work, focus, all those things that are challenging for our uh, neurodivergent people. And, and on, so, and, and then if they haven't had that background for the motor control and all the, and all those things, it, it's, it's like, you're, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of a really good analogy, but you're, you're trying to, well, you're building, you are, you're building on a faulty foundation. There's no found. It's like inverting the triangle and you're building on this little point of skills and you're expecting all this weight to be on top of this little point of a pyramid, upside down pyramid, and you expect it to stay steady and not fall over or not have a challenge. And so, so yeah, that's, that's just my perspective on things because I, I've seen it on a regular basis. And I, and that, like you said, the, the challenges are real and the answers are few and far between because of the structure of the system. I do not blame teachers. I think it's the structure of the system. I mean, let's face it. I think we're really operating off of what 1800 educational models, like from the 1800s, you know, we, I think we need to be a little more 21st century thinking. Well, I, I know that in uh, ICL's parent support that I facilitate the weekly support meeting. We now have evening support meetings. Those that are listening and might be interested, affectautism.com slash events for the schedule. Um, that probably that's the number one, if not the top, for sure the top three, if not the number one um, issue that comes in is concerns around their children at school and their needs not getting met, their support needs not getting met and um it it's it's something that we've barely touched on but um i thank you both for bringing attention to that so that you know it, it's something that needs to change and it's been discussed over and over again and we hope that uh things will continue to change i want to direct people to uh, a podcast Uniquely Human, Barry Prezant uh, wrote the book Uniquely Human. He now has a podcast. It is fabulous, fantastic. Um, I'm trying to catch up on all the ones that I've missed. This episode 81 came out in um, June and it really discussed a lot of issues that we talk about. And I just wanted to play uh, a couple clips from this specific episode, which I will reference in the blog post with today's podcast at affectautism.com. And I'll put the link to it here. You know, David, some of those global comprehension issues are very common among individuals with autism, dyslexia, and ADHD. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me because uh, although you know, these issues of comprehension or capacities for comprehension do improve with time. It is an area that impacts all this group of kids that we're describing, kids with autism and dyslexia and ADHD and a wide range of other, other learning behavioral differences that are all co-occurring. And comprehension, which requires the highest degree of brain integration, different regions of the brain speaking to other regions of the brain efficiently and well and accurately. Um, 
that those capacities emerge more slowly, but they do emerge. Uh, but they do they emerge more slowly. But because they emerge more slowly, we don't make accommodations for these uh, students who are on a different developmental curve. And then they they begin to appear to struggle or struggle. And then they develop an internal script that, oh, I'm not a good learner. I don't belong here. I'm different. I'm not as good. And that internal script of who you are and what you are, tragically, follows a lot of people through their entire lives, even though with the right amount of support and long enough. I always say this too, uh, if you ever wanna make someone dependent on you for the rest of their lives, remove support too early. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot of that. We hear a lot about, oh, I don't wanna make my child dependent on me. So I'm gonna, you know, they need to learn to lift themselves up by the bootstraps and uh, I'm gonna stop helping them it's sort of a sink or swim mentality. Uh, unfortunately, that makes a bad situation worse, and it can develop an internal script that, oh, I can't do it, I'll never be able to do it. And even worse, when the chips are down and I need help, the person I love most, whether it's your teacher or your parent or somebody else, they abandoned me. They walked mm -hmm. away and made me do something that I wasn't ready to do. And, mm -hmm. and we can change all that. These are things we can change in schools, in homes, in clinical settings, too. I wanted to share that piece because I think it's part of why DIR Floor Time spoke to you both and speaks to me and speaks to so many growing number of people and how important it is to really advocate. And that's something that's going to be an ongoing challenge. Relating very specifically to, to what he said, I'm always thinking about, you know, is my daughter regulated and what we've built into her IEP before she even started kindergarten um, was an accommodation um, for her to have um, sensory, you know, fidget things with her. And also uh, another specific one was the morning drop-off because we know it can be very challenging and there are mornings that are difficult. And typically that's when things come out about what's going wrong at school. It's right when we're going out the door and we could be like, we need to get to school. We got to get, you got to deal with it. We got to get to school. But my understanding of neural development and my understanding of how learning works is that if my child is dysregulated and I am sending her to school in a stressed state, she is not going to be able to engage her prefrontal cortex in a meaningful way that allows her to learn. So the best thing I can do is slow down, connect with her, work it through however we need to. It could be talking about something else. It could be whatever it is. And yes, she gets to school a half hour late sometimes. And I am privileged enough that I have flexibility with work. I can do that. I understand others can't. Um, and I, I feel so much for them. I know that that is really important. And that's the most important thing I can do to, to get her set up for hopefully a more successful day. With the sensory toys, that's essential. And her teacher, it was remarkable when we had our first parent meeting last year after three weeks of school said, you know, it's amazing. She uses them appropriately. She, she is not using them, you know, as a distraction. She uses them when she's having trouble waiting or when she's, you know, and it actually clues the teacher in that my daughter is feeling stressed. And um, something that I've tried to to emphasize because they have noted that she, as the year went on, she was using them less. And there was a, 
a question that came up at an IEP meeting about, you know, do we need this? And, and I said, this is the thing is my daughter is neurodivergent. She's autistic. She's always going to be <laughs> like, this isn't going to change It's part of who she is. I, and I don't want you to change it. I don't expect you to change it. Um, but what it means is she struggles at times and these things are there for her and should be made available for time she needs them. And, and my hope is that one day my daughter will recognize in herself, I'm not feeling some things and, and go to reach for it herself. She still needs some reminders at this point. But I think that's so important that, that those things quiet her downstairs brain, allowing her upstairs brain to be more online so that she's in a ready state to learn. And that's why I'm so, I, I, the accommodations I think are just critical. Don't ever, you're setting your child up to be in the learning brain. Like don't, she doesn't need to tough it out in the lunchroom without her headphones. It is very loud and dysregulating in there. And it allows her to eat her lunch. When she went without headphones, she wouldn't eat that's not going to help her stay regulated. So I'm, I'm always like, yes, it, it, just do what you need to do. I need reading glasses. How am I going to read without my reading glasses? Um, so and Melinda really and I them. both, both are wearing our glasses yes. to see. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, um, I, I know you might have something to add Melinda, but I wanted to play one more clip from the podcast that really speaks to a point Leslie just made. It's very interesting what we see going on frequently that um, we're trying to get kids to learn something, you name the skill, whether it's a social skill or an academic skill or anything in between. Um, but if we're not focusing on emotional regulation first, we can never get to learning. And if we're not focusing on emotional regulation first, kids can't access what they've already learned. Mm -hmm. So when we focus on the quality of the environment and the relationship, we are then putting not only students in a better position to learn, we're putting parents and teachers in a better position to teach. And so the more we can move towards strategies that focus on fostering healthy, positive relationships, the better uh, students and kids can learn and the better parents and teachers can teach and be effective in, in supporting all kids. Those points were made very well by Dr. Daniel Franklin in the Uniquely Human, the podcast uh, hosted by Barry Prezant and Dave, whose last name I forget. I'm sorry, Dave. Uh, fantastic podcast. I think it it basically covered a lot of what we had to say. Do you have any last things to add, Melinda? Um, just, I, I just think that we... Uh, myself included, need to go back to those principles of what we've all talked about, of relationship first, connection before compliance. It doesn't say leave compliance out, it's just before, you know, and then you, I also think about, you know, when, when you take away all the stress and, oh my gosh, my, my child, they're not doing what the other children are doing in the comparisons. And oh my gosh, what are they going to be? Are they going to be a doctor, a lawyer? What are they going to be when they grow up? Really, I, and this, I don't mean to be negative or morbid, but really when you get to the end of your life, whenever that may be, the thing that's really going to matter 
are the relationships and connections you've had with the people in your life, right? So I'm not saying that all these other things of education and learning and being the best person you can be don't matter. But in my opinion, being the best person starts with being a, a good human in relation with other humans. I love it. Any last words, Leslie? That was beautiful, Melinda. I think we can learn so much from these children. Um, and I, I just, again, I'm so grateful for my daughter who is just, she's teaching me all the time. And um, for any parents out there, I guess what I want to say is um, we're in it together, though we're not always able to connect, but I know you guys are out there and um, we're all doing the best we can and we love our children. And um, I think if we, we can reframe and really try to, to get to know our children, really try to get to know them and help others understand them. These kids can do great things in this world. I, I, I really do believe that. Yes, providing opportunities for our children. Well, I can't thank you both enough for being here. I'm so excited to finally have a parent panel podcast. There will be many more coming up listeners out there so we're going to get lots of more parent perspectives um i i just can't thank you enough thank you both thank you get 15 percent off any dir 101 course and introduction to dir and dir floor time through icdl.com by using the promo code affect a15 that's a-f-f-e-c-t-a-1-5